Good morning. How are we? How many of you notice we have two screens? How many of you are just now noticing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. So um, it was now it's two. So it, it's I think it's really cool. It's really awesome. So I take a little bit of used to, but if you're just realizing it, we used to have one, and now we've separated them. But they're still just as just as good. So it's very it's very cool. At least I I'm a nerd, so I think it's cool. Um, hey, I'm RG, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you have a Bible, that's good because we're going to be in the Bible, and we'll be in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, through the first part of Luke chapter. Uh, 20 comes after 19. So the first part of Luke chapter 20. And we've been in the, the Gospel of Luke now for, we'll come in our 20th chapter. So many, many months now. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, or the first announcement, if you're really, really new, that um, Jesus has just come in Jerusalem. Last week I talked about his entrance into Jerusalem on the baby colt. And that shows us what kind of king Jesus is, that he's vulnerable, he's weeping, but he's ruling and reigning. And that's the kind of king that we, that we follow. And so this week, Jesus has uh, entered Jerusalem, and he has made a beeline for the temple. And that's where we're going to pick things up. This is the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion and resurrection, and so it's very, very, very important. It's Passover week in the life of the people of Israel, so Jerusalem, where Jesus is, is crowded with probably about 200 to 300,000 people, which is way more people than can fit in Jerusalem. And so it's packed with people, and Jesus is there teaching and proclaiming the good news as he likes to do. And that's where we'll, we'll pick up Jesus as he's teaching and talking and actually getting a little bit angry at the people of Israel and the leaders especially. Luke 19, verse um, 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, <clears throat> he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day... Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus answered, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Okay, there we go. On uh, the first part of our passage today, we'll, we'll get nine, nine first through 19 um, in just a little bit. But um, here we go. Jesus rolls into the temple, and uh, if, if maybe you grew up like me and you kind of know this famous story of Jesus kind of cleaning house in the temple, my mom would always use it when she would get mad at me as an example of Jesus getting mad so that it's, you can't always just be peaceful. And I'd be like, Mom, Jesus never got mad. He was always zen and just peaceful. And she'd be like, no, no, he went into the temple and he overturned tables, so you need to go make your bed. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if that's the application of Luke 19.45. Um, but it does show us that Jesus 
Jesus did get angry, and we know that he got angry a lot at sin, um, uh, at, at the leaders of the temple, um, at people who are chasing and pursuing wrong things, but his anger was not like our anger, right? It was anger for the glory of God to be uh, revealed on earth, and, and anger that, that people were not following in the way that brings them life. And so he goes to the temple, and it's very significant that he goes to the temple. It's not just like, well, that was a big building, so that's where the people were, that's why he went there. You know, so what we want to do, as I always try and do, is we're going to do a little history. We're going to do a little homework because, newsflash, we don't live in the first century, <laughs> right? And so we can read the Bible and be like, I have no idea what's happening here. <laughs> what is the temple? Why is it significant? Why is it a house of prayer? What are the chief priests about? We don't even know. We don't have really chief priests. We don't have temples. And so in order to understand the Bible, we always, always, always have to remember that the Bible was not written to help us live a certain kind of life, right? The Bible was written to show us who God is and what God is about. Now, in that, we find out ways to live. But if we always look to the Bible and say, okay, now what's the nugget here for me? Then we're always going to be disappointed. But instead, if we look at the Bible and say, what does this book, what does this story say about who God is, what he's done, how we can live with him, how he is pleased, how he is angered, that is going to help us read the Bible so much more. So that now, everything in the Bible, from Exodus to Leviticus to 1st, 2nd Kings to Acts to Ephesians, all of it matters. Because all of it's about God revealing who he is to us. And so learning about the temple, um, I don't want it to be like sometimes I've heard a pastor say, um, when you start talking about some of the history of the Bible, um, he uses the phrase uh, Migo, which stands for my eyes glaze over, right? And I see it on you all the time, right? We start doing this and you're like, oh, wonderful, great facts. And what I, what I sense sometimes is that you're waiting for me to get to what about me, right? Instead of... I want us to understand that the Bible's about God. And so everything that we're learning about the Bible is helpful for us, including learning about the temple and the tabernacle. Okay? I hope it's helpful. But more than that, I hope it shows us more about who God is and how he's designed the world and how we should worship him. So Jesus shows up in the temple, but the temple did not just get created in the first century, right? It has its origins way, way, way back in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God has rescued and saved the people for his own possession so he could dwell with them. And to do that, right, he, he wants to... Um, Make a tabernacle. And so we have a tabernacle. We have a picture of a, of a tabernacle that we can, we can show. And this is it, though not like the original one because we don't have pictures from then. But this is what it looks like, basically. And it would be a, a place where God would, God would dwell. And so this was a movable tabernacle. So they would put stakes in the ground. And inside of there was a place where God actually dwelled on earth. And so this would be a continual reminder that God was with the people of Israel. God was with them, wanted to be with them, and he dwelled in there. Of course, God is everywhere at all times. But in a unique way, his presence was in the heart of the people of Israel. And as they wandered in the wilderness, God was always with them, right in the middle of them. And this was a reminder that God was with them. The tabernacle was built for that purpose. Right, Moses talks about this in Exodus chapter 25. It will also be on the screen. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them, right? Make, make a tabernacle, make a place where I can dwell and be my sanctuary, where God can live. A few chapters later in Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, 
God, God says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so here's a huge big idea. The purpose and the point of the Exodus was so that God could dwell with man. Right? God saves the people and doesn't just say, you're saved, now go wander. <laughs> he saves them and rescues them so he can actually dwell with them and be with them and guide them and help them and heal them and show them the way that leads to life. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. That's the purpose of the exodus, right? God creates Adam and Eve so he can dwell with them. God saves people from Egypt so he can dwell with them. Not, not far away from them, but be right in the midst of them. And so eventually the people get to the promised land after many, many, many years. They finally make it to the land of promise. And then they don't have to wander anymore, so they construct a temple, which is kind of an upgrade to the tabernacle, to be honest. And so we have a kind of a picture of that what it looks like. And there were different temples in the time of the people of Israel because they would get destroyed. That's a whole other story. But this is kind of a visual of what it looks like. You have the outer courts, and then that big tall building would be the Holy of Holies, um, where sacrifices would be offered uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, signifying the people's release um, from, uh, from Egypt, God passing over the sins of the people. So you have this, this temple, and it was a reminder that God was with the people of Israel, and they could always have it. It was built in Jerusalem, and it was the center of life for the people of Israel. Right? There weren't churches, okay? Um, there, it was, this was it. Like, this was the holy place, the holy city, the holy hill, the temple. And the temple is just so, so very important. And I just don't think that we think a lot about it because it doesn't seem relevant to us. But it's unbelievably relevant to understand who God is. I promise you that. <clears throat> Solomon is the one who first builds the temple. And when God says, I want you to build a temple, and Solomon's response, which I always love, is 1 Kings 8:27. Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? Right. This, this mighty God, this, this strong God, right? The heavens cannot even contain you. How can you possibly dwell on earth with us? small men and women. How can you dwell with us? And yet God desires to dwell with us. And the temple is the signal of his presence among his, his people. And so the temple served four purposes. Uh, number one was the worship of Yahweh. Uh, it's the covenant name of God. So the creator and the covenant God, it was the center of worship, right? There weren't personal Bible studies. You didn't have little devotional books. You couldn't do any of that. Right, the temple was the place where you worship God, where his majesty, his glory, uh, his excellence was revealed. You looked at the temple and you weren't supposed to think, what a great building. You were supposed to think, what a great God. He dwells with us. He is in the heart of the city. And if you look at early maps of the world, Jerusalem is at the center of the world. <laughs> That's what people thought. And in a sense, it, it makes sense. And the temple was at the heart of Jerusalem, signifying God is great and we worship him. This building is about him. And so it's the center of worship. It's also the center for the forgiveness of sins. It's where the sacrificial system was offered. And so uh, when Jesus is there, as he's teaching, there are probably animal upon animal upon animal just walking past him to be sacrificed. Because God can only dwell with man if there is um, sacrifice for sin, right? A holy God cannot dwell with sinful people unless there's something done to bridge the gap. And so in the Old Testament, the temple served as a place where animals would be sacrificed, blood would be spilled so that God's wrath would pass over the people. And so the temple, in a sense, was both a holy place and a bloody place, right? And so as Jesus is teaching, I can, I must be, I can imagine what he was thinking as he sees all the animals passing by him, thinking we're about to be able to stop all these animals <laughs> from being sacrificed. 
right? But it was the center of forgiveness of sins. So you would not just look at the temple and say, what a holy place. You would look at the temple and say, God forgives us and God can dwell with us and God can be with us. Now that's powerful because no other religion offered this type of way for God to know the people. Thirdly, Jesus talks about it in um, Luke 19, 46. The temple was a house of prayer. It's where you pray to God, right? You prayed up to God, and according to Isaiah 56, you prayed for all of the nations that they could know God, they could experience God, they could understand who God, who God is. And so it's a place where you communicate it with God, right? This was the place where God dwelt, so here's how you communicate it with him, which is very important. It's why Jesus, one of the reasons he gets so angry, because there's no prayer happening in the temple, And that's the purpose of it, to pray to God, to ask him for things, to make much of him through prayer, but that's not happening at all. And the last um, purpose of the temple, I think, is implicit. It's not written, but I think it's implicit. The temple was a place where heaven touched earth. The temple was a place where heaven touched earth. It's the first incarnation, right? Because you have the, the, the God himself dwelling on earth heaven touching earth. And every time you look at the temple, you would say, our God, somehow, mysteriously, we don't even understand it, somehow he actually does dwell on earth with us. Now they can never imagine how much he would dwell on earth with them. And so we have the tabernacle and we have the temple. And when John begins his gospel, he says, basically, he said, God, um, Jesus came and he made his dwelling among us. You know that verse? You can translate the word dwelling tabernacle where it says Jesus made his tabernacle among us. And so you can imagine if someone rolls into the temple basically saying, I'm the new temple, the temple leaders are going to be angry. (laughs) Right? Because they think this man's words are dangerous. Because the good news that Jesus is proclaiming is bad news for the temple leaders. Because what's supposed to be the place of worship and of justice and of forgiveness, the temple leaders have now co-opted as a place for them to get richer and to have more power. And the people don't even really believe in the leaders anymore. And they look at the temple and they say, this used to be about God. And now it's about men who just want power. So we don't even think God is, is with us. And so that's why Jesus comes in the temple and he clears house because its purpose is being defamed. And God is being defamed. And he gets angry because, as the Bible says, zeal for my house will consume me. That's what Jesus says, right? It's not just he's mad that people are making some money on the side, though that's not probably good. He's mad that the purpose, the entire Old Testament built on the foundation that God dwells with man is being desecrated and he is angry and he clears house. And that's when the religious leaders decide we've got to kill this man because we've got to keep the power. We've got to keep the authority. And that's why in the next section they ask him, hey, Hey, Jesus, um, whose authority do you have? Because we know you didn't go to rabbi school. We know you were born in kind of a podunk town, okay? Uh, So we're not sure why you're saying the things you're saying because we're the guys, right? We have the degrees. We have the authority. Why do you keep leading these people astray? Right? That's what happens here. They go, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? And, of course, Jesus, like a good rabbi, asked them a question, making them be trapped. And he says, "Uh, let me ask you a question which would just make me be like, oh no, oh boy, I'm about to be trapped. I'm about to be trapped. And they were, and he asked them, hey, remember John the Baptist, the guy, the crazy man, basically, who ate locusts and insects in the wilderness, right? You've probably forgotten about him, but Luke hasn't. Remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, we start with John the Baptist and he's proclaiming that Jesus is coming. And Jesus is like, do you remember that guy? And of course they'd be like, yeah, we remember him. He was kind of crazy. <laughs> and basically Jesus says, was his mission, was his ministry, was his baptism from heaven 
or did he make it up on his own? Basically, you've got two options. Either he was making up his own authority or the authority came from someone else. And so they go, they have this little conference over on the side, which is just hilarious, right? And they're talking and chit-chatting among themselves, like, okay, if we say this, oh, why didn't we follow him? And if we, if we say that he is a prophet, um, then we're gonna, they're going to be mad at us because we thought he was crazy. But if he's not a prophet, then the people thought he was, and they're going to stone us. So, and they, you know, then they line up again in front of Jesus, and they say, no comment, <laughs> right? And here you have the level of intelligence of the religious leaders of the people. They can't even answer a simple question because they're afraid because they fear the words of Jesus. They're afraid. And so Jesus, he says, I'm not gonna answer your question, but basically he answers it by saying, John's ministry, John's message, my ministry, my message comes from the authority of your God who you say you worship. That's my authority, it's God himself. And you don't have any authority anymore. And so what is it, what, I mean, the, this whole passage here, then they're like, we've gotta kill him. <laughs> we've gotta arrest him. And yet all the people hung on his words because deep down they knew what he was saying was true. What he was saying was true. And that's why the temple is so important because God wants to just totally change and renew the purpose, the purpose of it. So the guys come back and they say no comment, but Jesus is not done with them yet. He's gonna tell a parable against them, which is bad news for them. And so the point of the parable I'm about to read is that it's against the religious leaders, the temple leaders. It's about them but it's also about the history of the people of, of Israel. So he's still in the temple, he's teaching in the temple, and he looks at the guys who just said no comment, and looking at them, Luke records this, verse nine. He went on to tell the, the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, ran into some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Okay, what is this parable about? Hopefully I can help you. Um, this parable is basically about um, the people of Israel's history. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, God the owner has given a promise, which is the vineyard. The vineyard is the promise. And the promise is this, that God has made a covenant with his people to dwell with them and to be with them if they would obey him. And he's made a promise to them that through the people of Israel, all the nations will be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12. 
So God dwells with them, God is with them, and through them, through Israel, all the world will be blessed. All the darkness will be pushed back. God's going to use Israel to bless all the nations. This is the promise of God. But what happens? The people of Israel, right, they break that promise, right? They aren't able to fulfill that promise. And so God sends prophets, which are servants in the parable. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to one end, to make the people repent and turn back to their original purpose right? To once again, renew the covenant and renew the promise. And sometimes they do, right? But only for a few chapters, right? You're reading the old Testament and finally you're like, they did it. And then two chapters later, ah, (laughs) right? And it's just like our life too, right? They're just like us, right? And you still feel bad though, because you're just like, you know what you should do, but you're not doing it. And then the Holy Spirit's like, exactly, (laughs) right? That's why the Old Testament is just still so profound. And so prophet after prophet after prophet comes. Jeremiah, go to the prophets, and yet many of them get killed by the people. Why? Because they don't want to hear the word. They don't want to hear the authority. And eventually the owner of the promise, the one who created the promise, sends his son. And Luke makes it very clear. When Jesus uses the words, the son whom I love, he's talking about himself. Eventually the owner is going to send his son. And he's going to come. And yet what are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him too because he's the true heir. He's the true promise keeper. And they're going to kill him because they're afraid of him and they don't believe in him, right? They're scared of him and so they kill him. But here's the difference between all the other prophets and Jesus. All the other prophets were rejected stones. Jesus is the rejected stone who becomes the cornerstone. What does that mean? It means he's not dead. (laughs) It means he's alive. It means that Jesus, listen, it means that Jesus is now building up a whole new temple. Not with blocks and a building, but with people. Indwelt with the Spirit, who are now going to fulfill the original promise to bless all the nations, but not through the people of Israel, through the church. And Jesus is the one who lays the foundation so that Jew and Gentile can now live together and become one through the blood of Christ. That's the cornerstone. The one that got rejected is now the foundation of the church. So the promise of God is not void. See, here's what I love. In reading through this, I'm thinking, God, you are so patient and so good. You keep sending prophet after prophet after prophet. Why? Because God keeps pursuing us. God keeps coming to us, right? One prophet, two prophet, three prophet, four prophet, five prophet. Keeps saying, then he sends his son. Why? Because the rejection of the people will not thwart the purpose and the plan of God for the nations, right? Just because they say, no, we're going to do our own thing. God says, no, you're going to do my thing because I want to bless all people. And I'm either going to use you or not use you. But all the nations will be blessed through you somehow, some way, because the purpose and the plan of God will always supersede the purpose and the plans of men and women. Always. And that's good news because God is for us much more than we are for us. And so we can trust him. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. And what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? Paul writes about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what, this is what the foundation of the cornerstone does. Paul writes... Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, which is all of us in the room, it just means non-Jews, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigner to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Okay, bad news, but mm, good news. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, their teachings, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Mm -hmm. In him, the whole building is joined together and arises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, wow. <laughs> Wow, now I just touched a little bit on the temple. And so this should hopefully have a little more meaning to you now. But it's, it's difficult because we're Gentiles and so we've always feel like we've always been included, but we haven't, right? For thousands of years, it was only the Jewish people. And as Paul writes, you were excluded. You could not get in. In fact, in the temple that I showed you earlier, there was a, a dividing wall, a, a wall. And on the wall, there was a sign, kind of a famous sign. On the wall in the temple was a sign that said this. Or Tom Schreiner writes about this in his book. He says, in the temple, the court of the Gentiles was segregated from the court of the Israelites. And a famous sign posted there proclaimed that any Gentile who entered the forbidden area of the temple would be slain. Right? We had no access to God. We were separated from God. We were two totally different people. And yet now, through the blood of Jesus, we have been bought and brought in. And now God is building a whole new temple with him as the foundation and reconciling all kinds of people to him and building us up to be his people in the world. Now that's pretty incredible. You see how Paul reinterprets the Old Testament. He says, yes, the original temple function is now coming true in you. It's just no longer a building, it's a people a people of God's own possession. But always, always remember the chief cornerstone, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus has secured for you and I citizenship in the kingdom of God and the family of God. Through nothing that we've done, all by his grace, all because he wants Gentiles to be in. That's, that's what he wants. That's what he wants. That the original promise would come true. That's good news. See, if, I don't know if you caught this, um, in Luke chapter 20, verse uh, 16, um, the parable ends, and it's bad news for those who are opposing the Lord, as it often can be. The end of verse 15 says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 16, it says, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, that's a central verse of the parable. It means this, that the promise that was for the people of Israel, God is going to give to a new people to carry out in his name. And who are those people? Yes, <laughs> the sermon has landed. <laughs> good, good. I know I'm covering a lot of ground, but it's just so important um, to understand more of who we are and who we used to be, right? It's, it's us. We're the people now. It's the Christians, right? We're the ones who are carrying out the mission, the purpose of God, not because we're better, but because God's grace has changed us and saved us. And so God now graciously gives us the promise and says, you inherit the promise to walk by faith with me and to bless other people. And that's what the church is all about, built on the cornerstone of Jesus. All right, this is why Jesus is getting so angry in the temple, but also he's so filled with hope because he knows what's about to happen. Okay, in addition to that, um, more scripture for you. First Peter chapter two, um, Peter writes about it this way, and this is a, this is a great verse that kind of encapsulates so much of what I'm hopefully trying to say. First um, Peter 2, verse 4, Peter's writing, and he says, As you come to him, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, us, are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, which is Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. I've received mercy. This is what it looks like when people take hold of the promises of God to be the people of light and, and holiness and healing in the world and live it out in the world. Because the people that Peter's writing to are in exile. They're under persecution, right? Their world is not friendly to Christianity. Uh, if you think the 21st century is not friendly to Christianity in the United States, which is probably increasingly less so friendly it's much more hostile to the first century church. And so Peter is writing them to say, I want you to be encouraged. People in your church are being killed, but don't lose hope because the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and you are living stones. You're alive. And God is through you building up his kingdom on earth so that people can see his glory. Right? Do you see the connections here? See, the church is now the place of worship, Right? The church is, is the place where we can look and say, you know what, we don't have to bring in animals in here every Sunday and sacrifice them because there's one sacrifice. And Peter says, so now offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, not with an animal, but with your life because there's already been one sacrifice for sin. We don't have to sacrifice anymore. Now our lives are sacrificing themselves up to God as we embrace the calling as a living stone, All right? As we embody the good news of the people of God, right? See, the church should be the place where good news is embodied, is experienced, and is just exported to the world. Jesus, Jesus is not just killed because he's saying, here's how you can be happy, <laughs> right? That's not the good news of the gospel. They wouldn't kill him if he just said, here's the way, right, you can just love other people. No, they kill him because the good news is a threat to the empire. And the empire is always going to strike back, right, because they're threatened by it. They're threatened by it. And so in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus is in the temple courts, and it says he's proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is now the sacrifice. Jesus is now the priest. Jesus has the authority. And so this building and these guys who think they run the show, no, me, right, me. And so the good news that Jesus proclaimed, if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us. And it may not make us popular, but it will make us faithful. And so a couple things I want to just point out from Ephesians, from 1 Peter, and from Luke, from all the scripture that we've, that we've covered. Um, these will be on the screen. Hopefully they're, they're helpful. Um, pe being people of the good news, living as exiles in the world. Um, how do we do that? A couple things. Um, number one, remember our identity. 
I mean, uh, Peter says it. He says, um, you're a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're God's special possession, right? You are chosen. Um, you are special. You, you, God has bought you with a price, and so your identity has been given to you by God. You haven't had to go and achieve it, right? And so you either live one of two ways. You either live your life to achieve an identity, or you live your life because you've received an identity. And one of those will make you miserable, and one will fulfill you even if it's still a hard life. And so God in his grace has given you an identity as a special possession, right? As a royal priesthood, as men and women, sons and daughters of the king, servants of Jesus. That's our fundamental identity. And if you don't have that hat on your head, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because you're going to be searching for identity that you already have or that God wants to give you. And so remember our identity. Remember your history. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you were excluded, now God has brought you in. Once there was a wall separating you from the presence of God, now there is no wall separating you. That's who we are. That's what the church is. That's the freedom we have to worship. All right? If we don't remember our identity, then the good news is going to sound like bad news. <laughs> it is. Okay, remember our identity. That's really, really important. Number two, um, commit to unity. Uh, Ephesians 2 was talking about that. Commit to being unified. Jesus has bought us with his blood and dwelt us with the spirit so we would quit fighting with each other, right? It's because we're one family. We're one people. That's why it's just, it can be so frustrating uh, when we begin to just have all these bickering things over things that do not matter, right? Everyone in this room is unbelievably different. Right? If we just look around, we could just say, in what other world would all of you get together? No other world. <laughs> right? There's no other world because in both this church and in the global church, you have rich people and poor people and middle class people. You have white collar people and blue collar people and no collar people. Right? You have, um, you have men and women. Um, you have um, Republicans and Democrats. You have socialists and libertarians. Okay? You have um, Western people. You have Asian people. Um, you have South American people. Okay? Um, you have people with PhDs and you have people that can't even spell PhD, okay? You have all of these people. And guess what? All of those people get around one table. And I dare you to show me one other group, one other organization that can do that, that can unite many, many diverse people and unify them. Not by stifling out all their diversity, but by using it and unifying it so that we look better and more beautiful because we're all different, but we're all one. And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. That's what the new temple is all about. That's what the church is all about. That the world will now not look to a building, but look to a people and say, you guys are very different, but why do you love each other? And why are you unified? It doesn't mean we won't fight because we will, because we're family. But at the end of the day, it means that at the foundation of all things is Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so we love each other and serve each other, even if sometimes we get aggravated by each other. The church is not glorified when everyone lives by their own desire. The kingdom of God does not advance when you say, my way, but when you submit to the way of Jesus. Please, fight, fight, fight for unity, to be united, to be one family, and to really seriously love each other. It doesn't mean that the world isn't going to convert <laughs> overnight, but it does mean when they look at us, they say, I don't know how all you people get together on one table, but you do. And we say, because at that table, there's one loaf, uh, there's one cup, there's one savior. It's him, right? He's the cornerstone and we're the living stones. Remember our identity, commit to unity. Number three, proclaim 
and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that spring has come in the middle of winter, the good news that Jesus is on the throne, that he's our true priest, he's our true temple, right? The good news that God is with us. God is with us, and God lives in us through the Spirit, right? And be people of the good news, right? With our lips, actually proclaim it and say it and say, God's on the throne, and God loves you, and God cares for you, and through repentance, right, you can have a relationship with God and also be people who embody the good news of Luke chapter 4, where we're caring for the poor, where we're doing deeds of justice, right? That goes together with proclaiming the gospel, loving people, people different from us, the the least of those among us, all of that is wrapped up in being people of good news, right? And maybe hopefully being happy about it, not angry about it, right? People of the good news in deed and in word, proclaiming that God is on the throne and embodying what it looks like when God is on the throne by how we live, saying we actually want the future to come into the present. And the church does that by the power of the Spirit. And you can do that in the power of the Spirit, right? Proclaim and demonstrate the good news that we no longer have to go to a temple for God to hear us. Right? When I was in Jerusalem uh, years, years ago, and I went to the Wailing Wall, and you can actually go to the temple in Jerusalem, and you can still walk up steps that Jesus walked on, (laughs) which I just tried to take one of the steps, and I was like, this can be in my room, and I can be that pastor who's been to Israel, right, and just has a rock, so I'm really special, but I didn't because it felt wrong, and it's just really, really old rock. So, but I remember being at the temple, walking around and reading through some of these things. And at that point, I didn't know any of this. And so it didn't really have any meaning for me. I was like, oh, here's a great building. And Jesus walked here and wonderful. And I remember going to the Wailing Wall, which is still segregated between men and women, which is just crazy. (laughs) Um, And you put your prayers right in the wall. Because for the people of Israel, in a sense still, that's where God hears them. And I can remember going back to my hotel room that night and praying and thinking, God hears me now. I don't have to pray in the temple because the temple lives in me, right? Because Jesus is my temple, right? And if you take that for granted, then you're, you're not going to be gracious and, and have gratitude towards the Lord because no one in the Old Testament could ever have the assurance that God dwelled in them by the Spirit. And now you can go home and pray and God hears you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem once a year. He's everywhere because he lives in us. And so as people of the good news, proclaim that, live that, demonstrate that. Last one, um, remember our destiny. Do you know where you're going? Do you know where the world is going? It's not gonna burn up. It's gonna be renewed. It's gonna be renewed. Remember the question that Solomon asked in 1 Kings 8? He said, can God really dwell on earth? Revelation 21 is a resounding yes. And this is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Mm. No temple needed. <laughs> no building needed because the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty are the temple. 
right? This is our destiny. And so this is why we don't have to be afraid. As the church, we don't have to, right? When things happen in the world, in the Middle East, in our own country, we don't have to be hopeless. We don't have to be fearful because we know who is in charge of history. We know where we are headed. And as the church, we want to say, would that future come now? And we can always remember that God created a world, a good world, where he wanted to dwell with man and woman. And God saved people out of Egypt and slavery so he could dwell with them. And God sent Jesus into the world so that he could dwell among us. And at the end of history, at the beginning of a whole new world, what we see is that God fully dwells on earth with us forever. And this is why you have to read the Bible as about God and not about you because you'll miss it. Right? It all connects. Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. In the beginning, God. In the new beginning, God. God, 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 God. And he's building up a temple of beautiful, broken, crazy people like us and saying, go get it done. Go get it done until I come. Live as faithful exiles in the world. Because Christianity is different and the gospel is different. Dick Lucas, who was a British um, pastor, um, once told an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. So the early Christian, a woman is talking with someone in Rome in the first century. So, you know, 80, 90 AD, years after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, the church is just flourishing. And the Roman neighbor um, says this, I love this. He says, ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious, great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? Um, we don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their ritual? Um, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. But it's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done in us and for us and wants to do in the world. And we get to be a part of it. He's our temple. He's our priest. He's our king. Right? It's him. And if we follow him, if we believe in him, if we be people like him, holy and people of healing, the world can be changed. I believe that. I believe that, and Jesus believes it. Let me pray for you. Our Father, um, I'm just so thankful that even now as I pray to you, you hear me, and not because of my worthiness, but because of the worthiness of your son, Jesus, that anywhere all over the world, people all over the world now are praying to you, and all over the world over the past 24 hours, the church has gathered to proclaim one name, all kinds of people, they're saying one thing, we want to be united around the mission and the purpose of God. Father, I'm so thankful that we were included, that we were brought in, that the wall was brought down, and that uh, we are living stones, and you're shaping us and molding us to be your people in the world and for the world. Father, thank you for coming to us through your son, for dwelling with us, and we long for the day when heaven comes to earth at last. And there's no longer a building called the temple, but the world itself is your temple. Father, until then, help us be faithful. Help us be people of good news. In the name of the Father and the Son 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people proclaimed. Amen. Amen.